This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. All of us walk around with something we need to get off our chest. Maybe you're upset about something or something's making you sad. You've got frustrations at work or at home. And if you keep those things bottled up, it can affect all of us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get those things off your chest and figure out how to work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rise and Fall today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rise and Fall. The problem with church is the problem with anybody that gets in any sort of a position of power. It's easy to abuse it. This is Joe Rogan talking on his podcast with stand-up comic and actor Bill Burr. Let me say up front, this clip gets pretty rough, though it is edited and censored quite a bit. Even at that, it's still pretty rough. But I think it's pretty insightful, an interesting glimpse at the perspective of outsiders on the world of celebrity pastors. You can jump ahead a few minutes if you want to the credits. So to have a guy who's a pastor that's not a creep and that really cares but isn't trying to buy a fucking Rolls Royce like Joel Olstein and live in a giant mansion. It's like it oh, always goes mega church. Yeah, it always goes it always goes south. It's absolutely You know power. what I do love about Joel Olstein is he's an arena act. Yeah. And he does uh, Vegas too. He does the T-Mobile Arena in yeah. Vegas. I want to see the show. a picture of him up there. <laughs> you have to respect an arena act, I think. I think there's something to that. Yeah, there's something to that. <clears throat> it's, uh, this girl that I was talking about, she was real lost, and I think she was Jewish, at, or maybe she converted to Judaism later, but anyway, for one point in time, she was going to this rock and roll church. She was like, and she was a sweet kid. She was like, you should go. You would really like it. I'm like, I guarantee you I wouldn't like it. I'm like, what, some young, hip guy, probably sings songs, probably tries to women like get out of here with that right like, it's like a yoga class yeah. <laughs> it always happens that it way does, yeah well those rock and roll alternative churches there's a few like the justin bieber guy you know the guy that uh justin bieber has rogan's talking about carl lentz who met justin bieber when he was in a moment of crisis and became his pastor and trusted friend at the time this was recorded in 2018 lentz was the pastor of hillsong church's new york location he was a flamboyant and charismatic character, taking the pastor celebrity thing to new heights. His Instagram feed was full of photos of him and his wife hanging out with celebrities, hip-hop stars, NBA players, and Kardashians. Typically, he's wearing ultra-expensive brands, too, like Gucci or Supreme, and almost always wearing Louis Vuitton gold-framed glasses. In just a second here, what doesn't quite translate to audio is that Rogan's producer is going to pull up a now infamous photo of Lentz and Bieber. It's a paparazzi shot of the two of them walking. Lentz is shirtless and tan, and his shorts sit ridiculously low on his hips. There's the preacher. Look at yeah. whoa, 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 yeah. Whoa. Hold up. What's he, what's going on with his shorts, bro? No. No, 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 no. Any guy who's showing you're pulling your shorts down to 
like that. You're doing that because you're trying to get laid. Stop. Pull your shorts up to a normal height. Those things should be five inches higher. I know what you're doing. You probably don't even have underwear on, you fucking creep. <laughs> Jesus does not want you dressing like that. No! Turns out, Rogan was right. A lot more was going on. If it's true that people have been treated badly or that people have been bullied, I am 100% committed to moving that out of our church. That's Brian Houston, the founding pastor of Hillsong. Hillsong's a global megachurch with locations around the world and 150,000 in attendance. This interview is from the Today Show in May of 2021. Houston was sitting down with Savannah Guthrie to talk about mounting controversy at Hillsong. Controversy about Carl Lentz. Look, Carl is Carl. He's a unique character. There's a lot of things I miss about Carl. And by having said that, there were leadership issues that I believe included lying, included what I would call narcissistic behavior. Six months earlier, it was revealed that Lentz was having an affair, and he was fired. Shortly after that, more stories emerged. Stories about intimidation, privileging the famous, taking advantage of church members to serve as house cleaners and chauffeurs, and then more stories about more affairs. I'm acknowledging uh, that mistakes have been made and that there are things where we need to get far better, much better. Uh, I'm not shrinking back from that. William Sapphire once called the phrase mistakes were made, the artful dodge of the impersonal apology. It's passive voice. There's an admission that something went wrong, but there's no statement of responsibility. It's a favorite of politicians responding to allegations like the use of torture, politically motivated firings, the misuse of campaign funds, or my favorite, spitefully instigating a traffic jam of biblical proportions in New Jersey. Some terrible mistakes were made. And uh, he's right, mistakes were made. No one is blameless here. Mistakes were made here. Mistakes were clearly made. Mars Hill used the phrase, too. It was in an apology for plagiarism in December of 2013. It was actually their second apology, though. The first one did offer blame. It blamed a research assistant for deleting footnotes. But when that researcher's notes surfaced online, with their footnotes intact, they released a second apology. Events in the following months revealed that the mistakes made at Mars Hill were far worse than they appeared that December. The same was true for Hillsong. Three months after his interview with Savannah Guthrie, in August of 2021, Houston was charged with covering up sexual abuse by his father. He took a leave of absence this past January, but shortly after resigned. Allegations had emerged that he'd sent inappropriate texts to another woman, and that he'd entered the hotel room alone with another woman while intoxicated. We opened the series asking, why does this keep happening? Where do the failures begin? And why does it seem like everyone, fellow pastors, older mentors, denominations, networks, and publishers, why are they all powerless to prevent these disasters? Do you ever think about what Jesus would have felt like sitting in Hillsong Church? Honest answer? Yes. I think he would like it. From Christianity Today, I'm Mike Cosper, and you're listening to a bonus episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Today on our show, we'll look at this broader phenomenon, the way religious organizations like Mars Hill and Hillsong have this way of erupting, 
catching hold of people and proving over time to have a hollowness that collapses. We've had decades of high-profile pastoral failures. You'd think we'd have learned and reformed from these experiences. So, why does it feel like everything is still falling apart? An interesting place to start this conversation is with the federal government. I actually got to the broader argument by thinking about some of our political institutions and especially by thinking about Congress. This is Yuval Levine. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank, and his writing and research explores conservatism generally, political philosophy, and social and cultural issues. In recent years, his research and writing has explored the failure of institutions across society, the role that failure has on character formation, and the way that fame has replaced virtue. I came to think that what was really happening was a transformation of that institution from a place people seek to come to in order to make laws and influence public policy to a place that people come to in order to become prominent players in the theater of of our culture war. Members increasingly thought about what they were up to in terms of how to build their following, how to build their personal brand. I came to realize that this was something that was happening in a lot of institutions. We had transformed our expectations of institutions from expecting them to form people we could trust to expecting them to display and elevate people as individuals on a platform. Once you see that in one place, you see it everywhere. The academy, the, the media, the professions, over and over you find that rather than be formative, these institutions became performative. Rather than be molds, they became platforms. One of the most straightforward examples of the way institutions form us is the military, where the body is broken down and rebuilt, the will is reoriented around the chain of command, and where a sense of absolute dedication to your brothers-in-arms readies you for the battlefield. Something similar happens, or at least used to happen, in places like government or even the church. Entry into the institution most often required something like apprenticeship, learning from those in the years and generations ahead of you, starting from humble, often behind-the-scenes and functionary roles, as you grow in competency and demonstrate responsibility, moving into more and more significant roles of leadership. Because of that, we end up with certain assumptions about people according to the roles they play in society, their titles or vocations. This may be easiest to see if we think about the professions. You sort of know it. There's such a thing as an accountant. I trust an accountant not because he knows the tax laws better than I do, but ultimately because there are things an accountant would never do and would never sign his name to. And so when he does do something, I trust it. You could say the same thing about a journalist. You could say the same thing about a pastor or a teacher. There are responsibilities that come with their institutional roles, and that's how they build trust. And so I think part of what we lose when we lose that formative character of the institution, when the institution becomes just a place to perform, a stage, is we lose the capacity to have that trust, that sense that there are things this person wouldn't say or do because she's a scientist or because he's a priest. It's just not going to happen. When that is no longer available to us as a source of trust, 
this transformation of institutions really becomes a source of growing mistrust. Are there pivot points that you would look at historically, like the turmoil of the 60s or Watergate that eroded that institutional trust that were sort of catalytic for this? Yeah, I certainly think that there's a way in which the the fragmentation that our society has gone through since the middle of the 20th century has undermined that trust some. Whereas every voice in American life told everybody in the first half of the 20th century to become more like everyone else, since the 1960s, every voice in American life has told every American, be yourself. And be yourself is a liberating thing, but it does tend to break down mutual responsibility. And I think that that voice whispering in our ear, be yourself, is one way to think about why people in power tend to see institutions as platforms for themselves. This has built up a a tremendously powerful kind of celebrity culture, elevating particular individuals and giving them a stage, again, rather than channeling their ambition and their power in the service of other people or of broader causes. It's so interesting because one of the things that we're demonstrating is the way that the rise of celebrity culture in the U.S. also gave rise to this kind of dramatic transformation of the culture of churches. The way Bill Bishop puts it is like church became this phenomenon of getting to go to church with people who were just like us. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting the way that that sense of sort of personal self-expression completely transforms you know, religious life for evangelicals um, in particular. Yeah, I, I think that the, the, the lure of self-expression is particularly challenging to our religious institutions because they're not just a place to show the world who you are, they're a place to become a better person. But to understand our religious institutions fundamentally as expressive, I think robs us of the greatest service they can perform in our lives, which is to transform our souls in positive ways. And there really is a way in which the invasion of the logic and assumptions of celebrity culture make it very hard for us to think in terms of personal transformation and instead lure us into thinking in terms of personal expression. And those are just very different things when it comes to religion. Let's stick with the military as an example, because it's still functioning in this formative way. A person might join the Marines because they want to experience the honor that comes with the uniform, or the glory of battle, or a sense of duty to family or country. Or maybe it's just the fact that they want a vocation that can provide better opportunities for them. Regardless of that motivation, the experiences of boot camp, training, deployment, and the battlefield transform you into a fundamentally different kind of person than you were before. Those who've been through that formation hold it to be something sacred. This plays out in interesting ways. One is a lifelong reverence most servicemen and women feel about their work or their branch of the military. But another is a deep contempt for someone who wants to borrow on the capital of appreciation our culture has for soldiers. People who want to wear the uniform in public, but never served, or those who wear medals and ribbons they didn't earn. There's a name for it. It's called Stolen Valor. What's your name? That's that's my team name. I was the fixer. Johnny <laughs> the fixer, so. That's a pleasure meeting you. Hey, guys. If you go on YouTube and type in the phrase Stolen Valor, you'll find hundreds of clips like this. Maybe thousands. 
In this case, it's two soldiers talking to a guy wearing a total of three Navy SEAL tridents and an oversized Punisher patch, a symbol associated with SEAL Team 3. In the video's introduction, the host points out that real SEALs would never dress like this. The two soldiers in the video talk to the guy for a while, giving him more and more rope to lie about his military service. Eventually, though, they've had enough. So, where'd you buy all your fake shit? Fake shit? How are you getting this stuff? You're telling me a bunch of shit that doesn't make any sense. Really? Yeah. Take the stuff off the bag if you're not a real suit. Now. Because I know you're not. You know you're not. You know how I know you're not? Because I'm a real suit. He's a real suit. You're wearing that stolen dollar is actually a felony now. It is. What do you want? My hat? No, I want you to take off everything. I want you to quit acting like you're something that you're not. In a weird way, this is actually an example of an institution working, gatekeeping itself from those who haven't been through its formative processes. One has to earn the right to wear the uniform or its medals, and that's not just a matter of pride. It's also essential for the institution to properly function. They have to have confidence that the person standing next to them is who they say they are, has the qualifications to wear the uniform, and can be counted on in a crisis. In other areas of life, though, being an institutional outsider is actually seen as a virtue, especially in politics. In 2008, that love for the outsider helped to fuel Barack Obama's presidential campaign. The American people they understand the biggest gamble right now is to have the same old characters playing the same old Washington games over and over and over again and somehow expecting a different result. That's a risk we cannot afford. That's a gamble we cannot take. We gotta turn the page and write a new chapter. Funnily enough, his opponent, John McCain, ran on a similar message. Let me just offer an advance warning to the old big spending, do nothing, me first, country second crowd, Change is coming. There's an extent to which that's a fair comment for both of them. Obama was essentially brand new to Washington, and his biography represents the fulfillment of the American dream. McCain, though he'd been in Washington for more than two decades, had always been willing to part ways with his party when he felt it was necessary. But claims to outsider and maverick status have dominated political narratives for decades most recently including everyone from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Cruz may be one of the better examples of this, actually. In spite of attending an Ivy League school and being married to a Goldman Sachs executive, he still claims outsider status in the culture and spends a lot of time criticizing so-called elites. This is the year of the outsider. I'm an outsider. Bernie Sanders is an outsider. The appeal for this strategy, and the appeal for the audience, as Levine describes it, is the sense that we get, that an outsider is going to tell us the truth. One way to think about that is that you get at the truth by reaching for it as directly as possible. That layers of mediation, like the kind of hierarchy that you find in institutions, inevitably undermine authenticity and create opportunities for all kinds of corruption. This is a very familiar view. It's, it's deeply ingrained in our culture. And so we have a tendency to think that the person who stands outside the system and says, I'm just me. I'm not this whole big institution. That's the person to trust. That outsider, that maverick is the truth teller. 
again, often that's true. But at the same time, there's another way to think about authenticity, which has to do with layers of protection and formation that are necessary for us to actually have trust in people. Why would we trust the outsider except that that person seems to be free of responsibility to others? Well, that's a strange reason to trust somebody, in fact. Institutions can enable us to trust people by imposing responsibilities on them, by saying what this person's role means is that he or she is held up to a standard. The love of the outsider translates perfectly into the kind of entrepreneurial church planter and church leader that's shaped church leadership for three decades or more. There's not an expectation that a pastor should have formally studied the Bible and theology, or to have undergone any kind of apprenticeship in ministry, or even to have been examined and affirmed by a group of elders. The most important source of confidence in a leader today is simply results. And if the church is growing and innovating, a leader's outsider status and rejection of credentials becomes its own kind of virtue. And so God called me to come back to Seattle. I, I was plankton on a megachurch food chain doing college ministry for about a year, year and a half. And um, then I left to plant a church. And uh, I'd never been to seminary or Bible college. I was not part of a denomination. I wasn't licensed or ordained. I'd actually never been a pastor of a church or a member in a church. So it seemed like a good idea to start my own. Um, <laughs> since I had this wealth of experience to draw from. Uh, Imagine going to see a doctor or an attorney and being told, hey, I've never been to medical school. I have no certifications. I never interned with anybody, so I don't have any references to offer for my work. Now, you go ahead and lay it down on that table. I'll go get my knife, and let's get that inflamed appendix out of you. That's pretty much exactly what's happening here. Actually, it's a little worse than that. Driscoll made these comments while addressing a chapel service at a seminary. He's essentially saying that the very institution that paid for his flights and paid him a stipend to be there is superfluous. After all, he didn't need it. Hillsong's rise to prominence is a very different story than Mars Hill's, but it illustrates the same results. Like Driscoll, institutions like denominations or seminaries didn't play any major role in their success or reputation. Instead, they made a direct connection to a massive audience through mass media. Unlike Mars Hill, though, that connection wasn't about Houston's charisma or personality. Their ability to connect with an audience, the thing that helped them grow into a church with 80 campuses and 150,000 people, started with a 28-year-old former child star. She sang jingles for brands like Kentucky Fried Chicken and Coca-Cola in Australia. In 1993, she wrote her first song for church. My guess is you've heard it. Her name was Darlene Check, and this coming Sunday, almost 30 years later, millions of Christians will gather in churches and sing Shout to the Lord. The song has been featured on more than 200 recordings, like American Idol, Randy Travis, Reuben Stuttered, Carmen, yes, that Carmen, and countless others. Forever, forever, 
More recently, you might have felt a little bit of nostalgia listening to the Grammy Award-winning Christian Album of the Year. On the title song from Elevation and Maverick City Music's Old Church Basement, there's a bridge that remembers a line or two from several songs that were popular about 20 years ago. One of them is Shout to the Lord. In the three decades since Shout to the Lord became a phenomenon, Hillsong has released more than 100 records. Quite a bit more than that if you count kids' music, music in Spanish or Portuguese, or the almost 30 records from Hillsong Kiev alone. Their music provided a platform and credibility for leaders like Brian Houston and Carl Lentz, and not the other way around. But like Driscoll, once they gained a foothold on fame, they had the instincts and willingness to leverage it wider and wider. I think a lot of Christians saw them as just an interesting evolution of what it meant to be a pastor, though, and they never stopped offering the kind of trust and social capital they'd offer any pastor. And the more I've thought about it, the investment of that trust is the source of the pain of spiritual abuse. We should see that as a different kind of stolen valor. We trust pastors because we think they're motivated by love and self-sacrifice. We hope there's someone who'll give you the kind of wisdom you want to hear when they're praying with you at your hospital bedside or at a parent's or a loved one's graveside. Someone whose time and presence is full of grace, whether they're encountering the rich, the poor, or the dying. A few years ago, I worked on a documentary that allowed me to meet a number of missionaries from around the world. I met men and women who regularly trudged through mosquito-infested rainforests and chest-deep water to bring food and medicine to the people who dwell inside. I met someone who spent months being regularly poisoned when he came to visit a village. One missionary I met was on the field when he was diagnosed with a fatal brain tumor. Instead of coming home for his treatment in final days, where it would have been more comfortable and closer to family and friends, he went back to the field back to the neighbors he'd served, the pastors he'd mentored, and the city he'd prayed for. When I hear of pastors who use that title for selfish gain, for money or fame, or simply for the rush that comes with the power and control, I think of the phrase stolen valor. They're borrowing on the capital of people who've given their lives away. I think of them and I see this guy in the video you heard earlier with the goofy hat in the airport. A guy with a story that doesn't quite ring true, with a few too many pieces of flair on his hat or his backpack. They're not actually interested in earning respect through virtues like courage and self-sacrifice. But they want the social capital that comes with the badge and the free drinks at the airport bar. For several decades now, in the interest of church growth, our Christian institutions have been dramatically transformed, making way for entrepreneurial leaders, getting rid of anything that slows them down. These days, I've come around to thinking that we've underappreciated the value of obstacles. G.K. Chesterton has a famous parable about two people encountering a fence that blocks a roadway. The first one simply sees it as an obstacle in the way of progress and orders it taken down. The second orders everyone to stop until someone can figure out why the fence was built in the first place. Maybe in this moment where things continually seem to go from bad to worse, we should consider what fences we've torn down and why. Maybe those fences helped temper our worst impulses 
And maybe they helped us understand what mattered. Maybe they kept wolves out of the pen. Wolves who would prey on people who took it for granted that there were just some things a pastor would never do. We'll be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. All of us walk around with something we need to get off our chest. Maybe you're upset about something or something's making you sad. You've got frustrations at work or at home. And if you keep those things bottled up, it can affect all of us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get those things off your chest and figure out how to work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rise and Fall today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rise and Fall. Yuval Levine said that once you see this phenomenon, people using institutions as platforms for celebrity, you see it everywhere. And I think that's true. But it raises an important question. What is it about us, our culture as a whole, that's eager to follow celebrity leaders, whether it's in religion or politics or the other spaces where this is happening? What are the preconditions that make us susceptible to those kinds of leaders? What inspires such radical devotion? To answer that, I want to visit some ideas from the work of Hannah Arendt. Arendt was a young Jewish academic, getting her PhD in philosophy when the Nazis came to power in 1933. She escaped Germany to France, only to be rounded up for deportation to a concentration camp in 1940. She escaped that as well, barely, and made her way to America, where she spent the rest of her life trying to understand what had happened, how had institutions and moral frameworks and basic decency collapsed so spectacularly. For the next 35 years, she wrote about the dynamics of movements, mobs, mass culture, the problem of evil, and all forms of tyranny. Reading her now, almost 50 years after she died, feels prescient. She saw indicators in our culture that make sense of a variety of shifts. Everything from the rise of authoritarianism and celebrity culture to the phenomenon of social media and the way ordinary life becomes performative. For Arendt, the horrors of the first half of the 20th century were an outburst of deeper undercurrents that remained after the war. One of the most significant of those was loneliness. You know, so many people in America have nobody, have no one. Um, they are utterly alone and they've lost the family, the faith, the religious, the work, all the structures that gave people a sense of, of, of being part of something. This is Roger Berkowitz. He's the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center and professor of political studies, philosophy and human rights at Bard College. I think it's almost 30% of Americans now say they don't have one friend outside of a family and even sometimes in a family who they trust with their secrets or talk to on an intimate level. All of this uh, is part of what Arendt calls mass loneliness or modern loneliness. You know, people have always been lonely, right? I mean, lonely is an old idea, but loneliness was 
generally confined to the periphery of life, but our general lives were not consumed by loneliness. And Arendt, and this is part of her work that I think is really rich, she argues that with the rise of industrialization, with the breakdown of tradition and religion, and the, and the increasing loss of, of sort of a sense of place in the world, people are lonely in this kind of existential level. And, and these kind of lonely people are the kind of people who are ready to be mobilized by a mass movement. Along with the idea of rootlessness and loneliness, there's this sense of restlessness. In the West today, we enjoy more leisure time than almost any other culture in world history. And we have more in terms of access to art and literature or mindless entertainment to keep us occupied. And yet, our society has this kind of simmering dissatisfaction. You know, Nietzsche has an interesting take on some of this, um, because what we're really talking about is decadence, right? Um, I mean, Arendt's talking about loneliness, rootlessness. She doesn't use this word, but Nietzsche uses the word decadence. And, and what he says that in it, it, what decadence means, it's a question of style. And it means that life no longer dwells in the whole. And in, in that kind of decadence, there's a real sense of purposelessness. There's a sense of life has no meaning. So then, you have people who are deeply lonely, deeply dissatisfied, and longing for meaning. And into their lives comes a charismatic leader who has a clear sense of what's wrong with the world, a clear vision for how to fix it, and a place for you and their story. What the leader really has to do more than anything else is articulate a purpose. What is it that the movement is about? And if you articulate that purpose, RN says, there's a great quote, what she says is, the skill of the totalitarian leader is the ability immediately to dissolve every statement of fact into a declaration of purpose. So the, what the leader does is whatever happens, they turn it around and show that it fits with or is it opposed to their purpose? And, and they become truth tellers. Um, they reveal the hidden truths that no one else is willing to say and that polite society refuses to utter. And they show that everything is really either in line with this purpose or trying to prevent or obfuscate this purpose. And it does strike me that that kind of, of leadership um, is what is what is somewhat at issue here. When I had this conversation a few months back, I remember this part sticking out to me so clearly. Because what he describes here as an authoritarian leader was exactly the sort of thing you saw at Mars Hill. Mars Hill prided itself on this. Driscoll was enshrined as a truth teller, saying the kinds of things that were too polite to say in the outside world. This is hardly exclusive to Driscoll, though. This kind of countercultural truth-telling shows up in many contexts where there's a charismatic leader at the helm. For Driscoll, the themes were about masculinity and the culture of the church, and he's far from the only one to emphasize these. But others have emphasized entrepreneurial leadership, or certain messages about the family, or a condescending posture about getting the gospel or the church right. Similarly, Many spiritually abusive leaders share this tendency to spin every obstacle or inconvenient fact as an attack of the devil, or from unbelievers that want to hinder the church's mission. Mars Hill's plagiarism scandal has always stuck out to me in this respect. 
It's a simple, objective fact that plagiarism existed in these books. And it was proven that Driscoll, or someone other than his research assistant, had deleted footnotes that would have avoided the scandal. Being generous, you could attribute it all to foolishness, or a mistake, and not malice. But even then, to hear the church's internal conversations about the scandal, it was framed as a tax by the enemy out to hinder the church's mission. In other words, in a system like this, there's an explanation for everything. Outside criticism, internal strife, even the misbehavior of the leader. And it turns out that it's not that hard to sell people on these explanations either, because they haven't simply bought into a cult of personality. It's about a sense of mission and meaning. And that is what overrides their better judgment. I think one of the fundamental truths of humanity is life is about suffering. And what humans have shown over and over again is that they can take on immense sufferings. They can survive immense suffering as long as they believe that it's for a purpose, that there's a reason for it. And to come back to the point about loneliness, we are living in a time in which loneliness also means purposelessness. Loneliness means that we live and we suffer and we have no belief anymore that there's a reason for our suffering. Again, I see this dynamic all through the Mars Hill story. Driscoll gave church members more than a community and more than a sense of God's grace and presence, more even than a concern for evangelism. He was offering an all-encompassing and very specific vision of what the good life, the Christian life, should look like. And by following him, pursuing that vision, members would find fulfillment in their identities as men and women. They'd find meaning in their work, and they'd have worthy goals to pursue in the world. The ends in mind were grandiose. They were going to change Seattle. In fact, they were going to change the world. The stories you heard on this podcast again and again were people who devoted themselves to that purpose, that sacrificed untold physical, emotional, and spiritual energy trying to make it a reality. Most of them weren't blindly loyal to Driscoll, and they weren't unaware of his faults, but they were fully committed to this movement that he was leading. In the aftermath, the members of Mars Hill have had to reckon with that commitment, both what it meant at the time and what it means now. It's incredibly complicated, and it often left those closest to the center with feelings of disillusionment, stuff that in many ways it takes a lifetime to sort out. I actually think Nate Burke got at this most clearly, with a quote that elicited more feedback from our audience than any other. The thing that I'll say sometimes is, it feels like there's a Confederate uniform in my attic. You know? And I can unpack that for a ways. It's, it, when I think about it, it's like, so to some degree, I, I didn't get rid of the uniform. Right? I didn't throw it away because it's true. It happened. I wouldn't say that I'm proud of it because I didn't feature it in the living room either. But it's, it's not something I'm, I'm ready to talk to everybody about. It sort of depends on what their perspective is. And I would say, you know, what's, what's really interesting to me thinking about this and talking to Jesse recently about it too is like, I was really good at it. There was that, that Ken Burns Vietnam series 
if you ever saw that, there's this special forces guy that was in Vietnam pretty early on. And he's an old guy now. And he's interviewed and he says, it's really weird or strange being at your best doing something that was so bad. You know, and some part of me feels that where it's like, oh, I was really good at that. But at the end of the day, I don't think I was helping anybody. It turned out I was in the wrong side of the war. And um, by the time I got out, and certainly after, it felt like we, we needed to lose. We deserved to lose. And um, it was a relief when we did. One of the complicating factors in all of this is simply that these things work. Building a church on celebrity power, on charisma, on the sense of movement, on a spirit of grandiosity, it works. It attracts a lot of people, attracts a lot of money, attracts a certain kind of cachet for everyone involved, for the leadership at the center and for the members, to feel like they're part of something that's big, that's significant, that's meaningful. But I think stories like Mars Hill and stories like Hillsong and so many others prove time and again that there's an inherent instability to communities that are built this way. And that if we don't challenge some of these underlying assumptions, if we keep just building things the same way, we're going to continue to see things fall apart. Here's Roger Berkowitz again. I'm not a religious person and I'm not a Christian, but I, I, I understand churches and I understand institutions. Even an institution like the church is at this point so atomistic, has so fully lost its sense of, of, of coherence that it is subject to disintegration. And in a way, that's a big part of the story you're telling. There's one other aspect of this conversation that needs to be explored. And again, it starts with ourselves. We need to ask, what do we expect institutions to do? What are they built to do? And when are we using the wrong tool? We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Russell Moore has had a front row seat to conflict and corruption inside of Christian institutions for the last number of years. He's written about it extensively here at CT, where he's the chair of theology and the director of the Public Theology Project. We sat down to talk about it, and in short order, we were talking about Wendell Berry. The problem is, I think, uh, Wendell Berry used to say, talking about um, environmental issues, people want a solution as large-scale as the problem, and that's rarely uh, the case. Instead, what usually is the case are a bunch of small solutions. And he said those small solutions don't satisfy people's need for drama. It doesn't feel like something's being fixed right away. 
And I think that that's a, that's a huge problem with institutional recovery right now. Lots of small solutions are needed in a time when small solutions are seen as inadequate. It's funny you mentioned Barry. I think he's got an essay called Damage, where he mm-hmm. tells the story of digging a pond into a hillside so he can pasture cattle on there. And it's something he couldn't have done without a bulldozer. But within a season, the whole hillside collapses, tree, trees fall into it. And not only can he not pasture there, he really can't do anything there because of how much damage he did to the hillside. And his metaphor is, you know, having so much power and without wisdom creates these kinds of circumstances. It's key also how Barry defines wisdom, which is not mere knowledge, but knowledge balanced with ignorance. And having this this sense of the mystery of the way that the land works. And I think there's a clear parallel in terms of the mystery of how human beings work and how institutions work. The problem is I think we always tend to overreact to the last bad thing. And we have to react to the last bad thing. I mean, in, in the damage essay that you mentioned from Barry, he says something like, to neglect the scar is to renew the wound. And that's certainly true. Where there's a sense of that's over with, let's let's stop thinking about it and move forward. And you'll see that in a lot of institutions that are trying to recover, uh, which is to say we need to move on. So let's not keep looking backward. And they end up repeating the same things. But maybe even more often is the sense of that was terrible. And so the answer to that must be the opposite, whatever the opposite is in the way that we're defining it. And you end up with another set of problems. But the kind of wisdom that Barry's talking about is one that starts with, I don't know what to do. And when you're at a time when institutions are broken anyway, which means that everyone has to appeal to some mass, some populist mass, and you have to appeal to the people who have the most energy in the room at the moment, you often are going to end up with people who have solutions that are destructive. Yeah, I, I, another thing Barry says is basically it's a lost cause, right? Mm-hmm. Like in his lifetime, eventually the the Earth will take care of this, but the hillside itself is a lost cause. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to fix it in my lifetime. And um, I keep coming back to this idea that wh- one of the ways we're screwing this up is that we're trying to fix the problems with the same kinds of impulses that created them. Right. Yeah. So these grandiose ideas of how we're going to fix the church and the church is going to be great and all of this kind of stuff, it gave birth to the sort of nitro injected church growth movements that we've had, mm-hmm. which have brought a lot of people to Jesus and have done a lot of things to tarnish the witness of the church. And to learn from the lesson is to be just as skeptical of the grandiose solutions about how we're going to fix it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's hard, right? I mean, that's. We, Because we want to weep for all the damage done, but the solutions are probably going to be really small and personal and local and generational even. And gradually unfolding. Mm-hmm. One of the aspects of scripture that I find myself drawn back to constantly these days is the pillar of fire in leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
which then this cloud of glory inhabits the tabernacle, so the people know when to move forward. Uh, when, when the cloud is there, we move, but there's not a predictable rhythm to that. There's a sense of powerlessness in front of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a lot of meetings where we're talking about what's happening in the church and, and how to solve these problems. And sometimes we'll get to the end of one of these meetings and someone will say, well, we've talked about what all the problems are, but when we get to the solutions, we don't have them. And what I often want to say is maybe that is the solution. Mm. Or, or maybe that's the at least the first step of the solution. Peter has to go under the water mm. and cry out, uh, Lord, save me, before he's pulled up. I mean, there, there's a transitional time in everybody's life. And I think there's a transitional time in institutional life where we start to recognize I can't control this technologically and I can't control this sociologically, but I'm also not ready to cynically walk away mm. altogether. Mm. And that, that just, again, that doesn't look like success because success looks like here is the plan that we have for this curriculum to, I mean, even when we're talking about long-term plans, people will often say, here's the way that we ensure that people who are children right now aren't going to grow up to be corrupt institutional leaders, but it's this uh, series of steps. I just don't think that's what God's doing right John Whitvliet has this great thing where he, he says, you know, the whole purpose of the gathering of the church is to prepare people for their encounters with death. And I think about that constantly in terms of how everything we do <laughs> with our church gatherings runs in the opposite direction. It's all yeah. in the direction of triumphalism. It's all in the direction of how great life can be if we if we get our act together or follow this leader. You know, that was all Mark's, Mark's whole thing was how wonderful temporal life would be with your marriage and your job and your money and your church. You know, and I just I just wonder... I don't know. I, I wonder what role that has to play. You know, the whole memento mori thing has to play in the, mm -hmm. the sort of journey of the church. Uh, if it's going to be a healthier place. Yeah, I've been I've been uh, struck for 15 years or so now with the loss of church graveyards, and those graveyards I think played a key role in the community remembering the communion of the saints, of course but also the community being reminded of death every Sunday as they're, they're going in, in a way that can change the way that one worships and then, and, and then the way that that worship changes a person. It's hilarious to me to think how much we talked about the dangers of modernity, you know, 20 years mm -hmm. ago and how it had malformed Christians and all of this kind of stuff. And then we just created super high expectations doctrine-heavy, dogma-heavy community that was not really great at forming people and didn't value how important it is in those sort of critical moments in people's lives of suffering, of loss, or of marriage, of celebration, or whatever, to show up and celebrate or be grateful for the presence and grace of God in those pivotal moments, because that's how people change. This is going to sound really Southern Baptist of me. But nonetheless, I believe it. The loss of the altar call without anything to replace it is 
maybe not a cause of some of the things that are going on, but but it certainly should have been a carbon monoxide detector uh, going off because in those uh, altar calls, you saw the worst parts of evangelical Christianity, no doubt manipulative appeals and and uh, sometimes uh, people thinking that unless they had a crisis immediately that they weren't really uh, Christians. But I've been thinking about this often lately because Martin Marty in 1982 was talking in Christianity Today about why evangelical churches grow. And he, he sort of said there's this mentality that evangelical churches grow when mainline churches don't because the theology is more conservative and the expectations are higher. And there's some truth to that. He said, but actually the bigger part of it is that evangelical Christianity provides a language for crisis and rebirth hmm. of setting aside old and and moving forward. He said, when you talk like that, it sounds like you're psychologically or sociologically defining uh, things when actually you're just talking about how the Holy Spirit works. Hmm. The altar call represented the best of evangelical Christianity in the sense that every single week there was a regular pattern of people being reminded of the fact that they were sinners in need of grace. Hmm. And in those congregations where someone would go forward and, and kneel on the, I saw this many times as a child, where someone would go forward during the invitation and kneel down on the steps and pray. And other people would come out and just put their hands on that person. Didn't know what was going on, didn't need to know what was going on. It actually was a connection point for the community that wasn't about activity. Hmm. And it wasn't even about articulation. It was something deeper than that. I've had so many conversations in the past year about what to do about the church, about where we look to build something better and more beautiful. I don't pretend to have all the answers because the needs are too great, but I do think the altar and the graveyard might be a great place to start. Living life in the light of our death ought to cure us of our grandiosity. It should also inoculate us a bit from those who come around with a big, loud movement and promise us they have a wonderful plan for our lives. Gathering at the altar offers a similar cure. We kneel there as sinners in need of mercy. And if we truly believe in the power and the danger of sin, it should temper our ambitions. But maybe the most important part of that image is the gathered community around us, wordlessly laying on hands and praying. That's something that can happen in any church of any size. It costs nothing. It requires no special training. It only requires faith in Jesus and a commitment to the good and flourishing of those around you. At its most basic, it just requires showing up. Movements that gather around charismatic leaders arrive with a lot of sound and fury, and getting caught up in one is a hell of a drug. But there's a fuel there that eventually burns out, especially the closer you are to the center of it. And in the end, those who burn out or raise concerns are cast aside, worse off than they were before they were found. What would it look like for us to resist being enamored with numbers and noise? 
Maybe instead of counting Sunday attendance one year, we could count hospital visits, visits to the homebound, meals cooked for those who are suffering, and funerals we've attended. What would it look like for the church to embrace all the small ways we can offer those who feel rootless, restless, and alone a sense of belonging? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced, written, and mixed by Mike Cosper. This episode was edited by TJ Hester. Our associate producers are Azure Phelps and Joy Best Smith. Music by Kate Siefker and Dan Phelps. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Kate Lucky. Editorial Consulting by Andrea Palpendilly. CT's Editor-in-Chief is Timothy Dalrymple. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.